Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. All flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Praise God that he has given us his word. Well, this morning, rather than, than working our way verse by verse, as we've typically done in, in Colossians, and I think as you read this with me, you realize that would be kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Instead, what we're going to do is just to take a step back, step back from the text and just draw out three conclusions about Christian discipleship. And I think you'll see them clearly as we move through this. Three things that we'll notice that Paul shows us as he gives this farewell to this, this church. Here are those three ideas that we'll be observing. Number one is that you see it in your notes, true disciples serve Christ together. The second is that true disciples mature. And the third is that true disciples endure. I very rarely make a rhyme for you, but I am Southern Baptist, and so sometimes my points sound Southern Baptist. <laughs> Let's look at that first one, that uh, true disciples serve Christ together. As I was reading and meditating on this passage, one of the things that struck me, that really just jumped out, is, is the way, the, the language that Paul uses to describe his friends and his, what he calls, co-laborers in the gospel. I want you to notice how all of these people mentioned are not defined in themselves, but they're defined by their relationship to Christ and their relationship to other Christians. Kind of tells you something about where their identity is, doesn't it? In verse 7, if you look, and if, you, if you're new with us, we keep our Bibles open because we're just in the text the whole time. So verse 7, Tychicus is a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Look at verse 9, Onesimus, he's a faithful and beloved brother in one of the Colossians. 
Don't miss that. One of the Colossians. In verse 11, Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. Mark and Justice are fellow workers. Do you see how they're, they're all related tightly to one another? He's not just a worker. He's not just a tent maker. He's a fellow worker. In verse 12, Epaphras is one of the Colossians, one of the Colossians. And at the beginning of the letter, if you go back to chapter 1, Paul describes this man as a fellow servant of Christ. In verse 15, those in Laodicea are called brothers. In verse 17, Aristarchus is encouraged to fulfill the ministry that he received in the Lord. Everybody has a relationship outside of themselves that defines who they are. None of these people is said to, to belong to themselves. We don't belong to ourselves as Christians. We've been purchased. All of these, these men that are described are a part of something or someone outside of themselves. They're either brothers or they belong to the Colossian church or they're fellow prisoners or fellow servants or fellow workers. Each one of these people is spoken not in terms of their careers, not in terms of their pasts. They're defined by their identity in Christ. Let, let's, let's just look at a couple of these samples as we walk through. Look at that word brothers that we see over and over again. I, I think sometimes we take that word for granted, don't we? Brother so-and-so, brother so-and-so, it's good to see you. But in the New Testament, brothers are called brothers because they are literally a part of the same family. They're actually brothers. They've been adopted together. They've been adopted by the father into his family together. And so they're actually brothers. We call one another brother or sister in the church because we've been adopted. Ephesians 1.5, if you want to write down this one, you don't have to turn there. Ephesians 1.5 says, in love, he, God the father, he predestined us for adoption. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So then what does one adopted son of the father say to another adopted son of the father? What do they call one another? Brother. Amen. Brother. See, the, the title brother, it, it testifies. It testifies to this, this idea of our belonging to the same family, being, being brought in together, growing up in Christ, in that family together. All Christians are adopted into the family together. And so all Christians are brothers and sisters. When Paul commends Tychicus, and that's a funny name. Was it one of my kids last week said, imagine if your name was Tychicus. It is a funny name. So when, when Paul commends Tychicus to, to the Colossian church, they don't know who this guy is. So they're receiving this letter from this stranger. And, and the stranger says, this letter's from Paul. And in the letter, Paul says to them, Tychicus is a brother. And that, that has a weight to it. So when they read that and they understand that, they're hearing from Paul, we're in Christ together with this man. He's been adopted too. We, we belong to the same father. We belong to the same family. And so we can trust him. That, that's Paul's message to them, just with that one word, brother. 
Well, there are brothers there in these final greetings, but there are also a couple people described as one of you. Do you see that there? Onesimus, Onesimus is described like this. Paul says in verse 9, Onesimus is a beloved brother. So he's a brother first, but then Paul says he is one of you. In verse 12, Epaphras is described this way. Paul says, he's one of you. What does he mean by that? Does he simply mean that these men are from Colossae? Like they are, they're Colossian and, and so he's one of the Colossians? I think, yes, but I think he means more than that. I think there's more to it. He's talking about how these two men who are in Rome with Paul, but who will soon be reunited with their church. He's talking about how these two men belong to the local church together. The local church in Colossae. They're not just in Christ together, like brothers who live across oceans from one another. They actually have something more in common. They belong to the same local body of Christ. So Onesimus and Epaphras, because they belong to Christ and they belong to the local church, they are part of the church. They're spoken of as of. They're of the church. I love prepositions because they say so much. We don't talk about church membership a whole lot, do we? But I believe that this ofness, if I can make up a word, it's, it's roughly equivalent to our modern-day church membership. They might not have called it church membership, but when we are in Christ and we are of Del Cerro Baptist Church together, that means that we are accountable to one another. We're, we are growing in Christ together. We submit to one another in Christ because we belong to one another in Christ. We're a part of the same body. There's, there's a meaning to that. The last observation we have here is, is all this together language in general. Another word you see come up several times in this passage is that word fellow. If you're looking and reading through the text, this word fellow implies this constant togetherness that Christians have. We see that word Fellow in verse 7. Tychicus is described as a fellow servant. In verse 10, Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. In verse 11, Mark and Justice are added in as Paul's fellow workers for the kingdom. These are men that are working alongside or they're imprisoned alongside. They're serving alongside Paul and other brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what, what does that matter? Well, I want, I want you to notice something. I think it's true here for Paul, and I think it's still true today. God does not call any of us to follow Christ by ourselves. He's given us fellows. We have co-laborers, men and women, to encourage us, to weep with us, to pray with us, to rejoice with us, to call us when we were praying, needing encouragement at that moment. We talked about this some on Wednesday night, but, but growing in Christ as a church means that we will 
become closer to others as we become closer to Christ. We're fellows. I don't know what the feminine version of fellows is, but we are together. We, we work and serve and worship together in Christ. You especially see this with Paul and Epaphras. If, you, if you've been tracking our way through Colossians, you see that these two men have a special relationship. I want to show you how tightly they are and how, how closely they're laboring for this church. Look at verse 12 again in our passage. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. See, Paul is, or Epaphras is struggling in his prayers for this church. He's laboring to the point of difficulty for the Colossian church. What, what is his prayer for them? What is Epaphras' prayer? That they will stand mature. Epaphras wants to see his home church grow in Christ. He wants to see the people that he loves, that he has he's shared the gospel with, he wants to see them fully assured in the will of God. Fully assured. He wants them to have assurance in Christ, to not wonder about their own salvation but to be growing in Christ to the point when they look at their lives, they know that the only possible way that they've been brought from that point to this point is Jesus Christ. That's assurance. And that's what Epaphras is wanting desperately for this church. How do you think that Paul knows that Epaphras wants this for this church? Paul's praying with Epaphras, isn't he? He's praying with him. If you'll remember, back in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10, you don't even have to remember, just flip back a couple of pages. Colossians, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. I want to show you what Paul's prayer is. And what you're going to see is that Paul's prayer matches Epaphras' prayer. And I think that's the case because they're praying together. They're laboring together. Paul says in Colossians 1, 9, And so, from the day we heard, We have not ceased to pray for you. We, plural, we, him and Timothy and Epaphras, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Epaphras wants the Colossians to stand mature and assured in God's will for them. Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will for them in spiritual wisdom and understanding so they could bear fruit, so that they could show their maturity as being rooted in Christ. Both of them are laboring in prayer, not alone, but together. They're asking God to strengthen this church, to make them mature, to give them assurance. They're asking the same things because they're praying side by side. Nobody, nobody walks in Christ alone. We cannot do it. We will falter. We will slide away. Each one of us, as disciples of Christ together, we require one another to grow in Christ together. 
It is through other Christians that the Holy Spirit reveals his, his presence with us. And so it's through other Christians that we are strengthened in our faith. We don't grow alone. And that transitions us into these next two observations that we can make about this text this morning. In this list of people that we have here in Colossians 4, there are two men that really will jump out at you if you've read the book of Acts and you've read the rest of Paul's letters. Two men. They're mentioned elsewhere in the Bible and their stories I think are worth looking at and drawing conclusions from because the outcome of their stories is, is remarkably different. They're set on different trajectories. One of these men will bring us hope and the other of these men will stand as a warning for us. The first is Mark. Y'all know Mark? Paul mentions him briefly in verse 10 where he says that Aristarchus and Mark, Barnabas' cousin, and Justice are with him. And these are the only men of the circumcision. They're the only Jews that are there with, with Paul in, in Rome, Christian Jews. Mark, he points out, again, he's the cousin of Barnabas. And what we're going to see from his story is that someone who is truly in Christ matures. They grow in Christ. Or as we've put it in your notes, a true disciple matures. So let's, let's learn his story a little bit. Mark, also called John Mark, we first learn about in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, we learn that John Mark is sent out from the Antioch church. This is a church north of Jerusalem. John Mark is sent out from that church alongside Paul and Barnabas. And from what we can tell, Mark is sort of their, their assistant. He's like an apprentice to these, these missionaries, the first missionaries the church ever had. He's, he's Barnabas' cousin, and so we can guess that, that Barnabas knew him well enough and trusted him well enough to want him along on the journey. Barnabas knew that they would need some help. Paul knew they would need some help, and so they get their helper. Here, here he is, John Mark. So they leave Antioch, and they set sail from Antioch, and they head down into the Mediterranean to the island of, of Cyprus. And that's the, actually the closest seaport to Antioch. Barnabas, Barnabas is actually from Cyprus, we learn about in the book of Acts. And so since he's from there, it kind of makes sense that he would go back to his hometown to be a missionary to the people that he left years ago. And so here he is going back to Cyprus, and things seem to be going pretty well. They land on the, the northeast side of the island, and they, they journey 120 miles down to the other side of the island. And that's where they first meet some opposition. So things are going pretty well for however long those, those first many weeks are. But then things get real when they get to this town called Paphos. They, they meet this man there who is a false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus, or son of Jesus. Also goes by the name Elymas. And, and what Elymas is doing while Paul and Barnabas are preaching is he's trying to turn listeners away. So everything that Paul and Barnabas say, this guy undermines, and he says, no, that's not true. And he kind of puts these, these seeds of dissension in and tries to get people to, to turn away from this faith, this gospel that these men are proclaiming. And so Paul hears of this, he sees this happening, and what does he do? He curses this man and, and turns him blind. And I think that at this point, John Mark is like, 
whoa, this is not what I expected. I'm with a man who can make people turn blind. I'm just speculating. I don't know that that's what's going on in John Mark's mind. But we do know that when they leave Paphos and they go to Pamphylia, so they go to the next town north in in the Mediterranean in Greece, they get to this town, and John Mark is, see you later. He's he's gone. He, He doesn't want anything else to do with what his cousin and Paul are up to. And we don't know why. We don't know why John Mark leaves exactly. Some, some people say, well, maybe he's, he's homesick. Because what we see happen with John Mark is when he leaves Pamphylia, he doesn't go back to his, his sending church. He goes back to Jerusalem instead, where mama's from. And so, so we think, well, maybe, maybe he's either embarrassed about, about ditching Paul and Barnabas and he's afraid to go back to Antioch, or maybe he just misses mom. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. We don't know. And in Acts, Luke doesn't tell us. All he tells us is this, in Acts 13, 13. He just makes this little mention. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them, that's John Mark, he left them and returned to Jerusalem. Not a word else is said. And it could, it could be maybe Luke is, is not wanting to say much about this because Mark is his friend. And, and so when he's recording this, he doesn't exactly say all about, talk about all the tears that, that John Mark is crying as they're on the boat. Maybe he doesn't want to share about his seasickness. We don't know. All we know is that for some reason, John Mark ditches the mission. He leaves. And this will not be the end of this incident, if you know the book of Acts. Because whatever happened, Paul did not forget it. In fact, after Paul and, and Barnabas finish this, they finish this first journey together. They go back up through Turkey and then they sail back down and they head back home to Antioch and then down to Jerusalem and they go back to their home church in Antioch. Not long after that, Paul says to Barnabas, Barnabas, let's do it again. Let's, let's go back and check on the churches that we planted. Look at Acts 15.36 with me if you'll turn back there. I want to show you what this conversation looks like. If you're wondering, why are we sticking around in Acts? There's a point to this. Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. There's Mark again. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Don't miss that, that two-word euphemism that Luke throws in there. A sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement between the two chief missionaries of the church. That is the Bible's way of saying they got in a fight. An argument. Bar- Barnabas wants to take Mark on their second journey, and Paul says, no, Mark's a wuss. He ditched us in Pamphylia and went back to see his mama. 
I'm not taking someone who we can't rely on. Barnabas believes that Mark is useful. Barnabas says he's useful in our mission. Paul says, no, he's not. Barnabas believes that Mark has matured in the faith by this point. It could be a couple years down the road. And Barnabas believes he's mature enough to try it again. Paul says he's not. So it's here that Paul and Barnabas, co-laborers, fellows, co-laborers in the Lord, they part ways. Paul picks up Silas to travel with him. He later recruits Timothy to be his apprentice. Barnabas and John Mark get on their way back to Cyprus, and we never hear from Barnabas and Mark again in the book of Acts. But Acts is not the end of the story. That's why we're coming back to this, okay? Somewhere along the way, once Paul is imprisoned in Rome, who does he tell us shows up to be a help to him? John Mark. Whatever disagreement Paul and John Mark had, whatever has transpired over the last 10 years, John Mark is now in Rome ministering to Paul who is in prison. Shouldn't we expect, shouldn't we expect that if Paul's message, if Christ's message, if Peter's message, if our message is a message of reconciliation, all things being reconciled to Christ, shouldn't we expect to see that Paul and another brother in Christ are reconciled to one another? If the gospel is true, if it has the power to heal broken relationships between Christians, then we should expect to see something like this happen. If Christ has forgiven us, then we are compelled to forgive one another in Christ as these two men forgave one another. Being in Christ also means this. It means that we grow. Like Mark, we mature in Christ. A true disciple matures. We see that in Mark's life, don't we? Here's a man who abandons the mission when there is a hint of difficulty. And then over the years, as he is discipled, as he is trained up, as he is matured in Christ with a brother in Christ, he gets to the point where he is now an enormous help to the kingdom. There's one more thing I want to show you about Mark. Turn with me to, to 2 Timothy 4.11 because Paul's not finished singing the praises of this young man. 2 Timothy 4.11. The setting here is that Paul is still in Rome. So when he wrote the letter to the Colossians, he was in prison in Rome, and at some point he's released, and then he's imprisoned again, back in Rome, this time with the death penalty attached to his imprisonment. And all of those people who were with Paul when he wrote to the Colossians, they're, they're gone now. Most have left Paul because of ministry opportunities. Their churches needed them. And so they go to serve their churches. And now only Luke is left with Paul. And Paul's writing to his, his friend Timothy. And look what he says, him, sec, says to him, 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul says to Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Of all the people, think of all the people that served alongside Paul. 
Of all the people that Paul wants to see in the last days of his life, it's Mark. Mark. Because of his his growth in Christ. Because he's persevered to the end. He's grown in the faith and he's now at the end of Paul's life. He's the one person besides Timothy that Paul wants to see. This tells us a few things about the Christian life, doesn't it? What we learn about God is that he is gracious and he's merciful. We prayed Psalm 103 a little bit today, but I want to read it again for you. Because when I was reading this and I was thinking about Mark, all I could think of was God's mercy to me. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. So the first thing we should see is that we should always praise God for his mercy towards us. Because every one of us has a bit of mark, or a lot of mark in us. What we learn from Paul and Barnabas is that we should be patient with young believers. God is working. He's working through the trials and the failures of young believers, and he's shaping them to become fruitful in ministry. But we have to be willing, as older believers, to patiently disciple them and work with them, to speak the truth and love to them with patience. We see this in Barnabas. Barnabas, we can only assume, but I think it's a strong assumption, I think that Barnabas has discipled Mark in the faith. And I think that's why Barnabas is so adamant that Mark go along with him. Barnabas has discipled him in the faith despite Mark's early failures. Mark didn't just abandon Paul, he abandoned Barnabas too. And Barnabas forgave him, he saw that as, a, as an opportunity for ministry, as an opportunity for, to disciple him. And so he, he works with him. He took risks with him. And he saw to it that Mark would not stall out as a baby Christian. At the same time, I believe that, that we can say that Paul showed discernment. Paul showed discernment in not taking Mark on that second journey. Mark was obviously immature in the faith and he needed more training he wasn't ready for for a mission that would be as intense as the one that Paul was about to embark on so I think it's providential that Mark was not along on that trip if, if you look back through the book of Acts and you see Paul's journey on that second missionary trip it's, it starts out as 1,000 miles over land that's a long way And on that journey, Paul got sick. He probably got malaria. He was put in prison. He was beaten. Mobs tried to kill him more than once. He stayed for very long periods in in cities that would have been unfamiliar to, to John Mark, in cities where perhaps he would have been a stranger there. And Paul providentially knew that Mark was not ready for that trip, and so he advises that he not go. So Paul was willing to be patient in a different way. He was willing to be patient as Mark grew in the faith. He didn't thrust him into 
difficulty that he wasn't ready for. He didn't put him into positions of leadership that Mark wasn't ready for. I believe this is one of those circumstances where Paul was right and Barnabas was right. And and though they disagreed and they they parted ways, what happened? God, through his grace, working through this human sinful disagreement, God ultimately used it for his glory. Third thing we learn from Mark's story, and I think this is an encouragement to all of us, is we as Christians are not defined by our failures. Praise God. Praise God that our identity in Christ isn't changed. It's not affected by our weakness. Our faithfulness to God does not affect his faithfulness to us. We see that in Peter's story, don't we? Peter follows Christ around for three years and he's, he's learning what it means that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter sees his miracles, he hears his preaching, he knows the compassion of his Lord. And then when Jesus is arrested, where's Peter? Where's the rest of the disciples for that matter? They're gone, they've vanished. A little girl, a little slave girl says to Peter, you are one of them and Peter can't even stand up to her. He denies that he even knows Jesus. But does that define Peter's ministry? Praise God, it does not. Peter will have several more failures over his career. But each one, after each of Peter's failures, he repents and he turns to Christ. Repents and turns to Christ because he knows that it is ultimately Christ's righteousness that makes him acceptable to God. And so he knows that he can freely repent and turn to Christ daily. It's not his righteousness, but Christ's. And so the righteousness of Christ begins to grow on Peter. And it begins to grow on Mark. And it begins to grow on us as we are saved by his righteousness. Righteous work. I want to encourage you this morning that we are not defined by our failures. We're defined by Christ's victory. You can have assurance in Christ because of what he has accomplished. Let's look at the second man. This is less encouraging. Second man I want you to examine, or us, is a man named Demas. You might not have heard of him before. Demas is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, and each time it's in one of these farewell greetings. When Colossians and Philemon are written, Demas is right there with Paul and these other brothers. He's mentioned right alongside Luke. So in Colossians 4.14, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. At the end of Philemon, Paul says something similar. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. We don't know a whole lot about Demas. Only that he's with Paul during this time. And that he's well known enough to the Colossians that they know who he is. And I'm not going to speculate a lot further than that. But, but in, in most regards, we, we can say this, we can understand this, that in those Christian circles, Demas was considered a follower of Christ, 
He was known to the disciples. He was a fellow worker in the ministry. That's his beginning. Demas's end is more difficult. Because two years later, after Colossians is written, when Paul is back in prison, he's back in Rome, and all of these other brothers have gone to their ministry opportunities, we don't see that same story with Demas. Turn back with me. It's Bible day. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10. Remember, Paul's received the death penalty. He's awaiting his execution. He's lonely. He's writing to Timothy. He's requesting that Timothy and Mark come to see him. But then look what he says about this man, Demas. Paul says to them, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is in love with the world. He had a good start, but he didn't endure. He did not finish well. He didn't run the race to the end. He had lots of people. Even Paul, he convinced them that he was a disciple of Christ. He's a fellow worker right alongside of them. But it turns out his true love was for the things of the world, wasn't it? Demas is a warning to us. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When Paul says that Demas is in love with the world, he's saying the love of the Father is not in him. He became consumed by the desires of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life. This this is someone who ministered, who shared the gospel who preached the gospel. He ministered in the name of Christ. But when something flashier came along, he abandoned the faith for the love of the world. None of us is above this. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. Peter says, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour So Peter says, resist him. Stand firm in the faith. As soon as any one of us says, what happened to Demas will never, ever happen to me. What have we done? We reveal that we are not sober-minded enough. Overconfidence and pride make for the easiest targets and the tastiest snacks for the hungry lion. This This is why we need one another. Church, this is the value of being together, in Christ together. In a healthy church, there are people who are willing to point out to us when our desires are tilting towards worldliness. There are people who can then restore us in a spirit of gentleness. First thing we learn from Demas then is to be watchful lest we fall like Demas. 
The second, and, and I want you to get this, because I think this has hurt many of us. The second is that we should not be discouraged by Demas and people like him. People that are in positions of leadership in the church will falter. People we look up to in the faith will fail. How many of you can, can you remember someone throughout your Christian life? Someone who you were in a Bible study with, or maybe he was a pastor, or someone who was an encouragement to you, a family member, but has now abandoned the gospel for the world. It is absolutely devastating. It can cause us to question our faith even. How is it? How is it that, that what I believe is real and worth pursuing if this other person uh, someone who was a hero to me in the faith has exchanged the crown of Christ for a girl in a skirt. How is it that someone who led me to Christ and trained me and taught me and loved me can exchange the gospel for a lie? Our temptation, when something like this happens, our temptation is to conclude that somehow then the gospel isn't true. That it's somehow less true if people like, like Demas are willing to trade it for something less. This is where we absolutely have to remember this. The truth of the gospel stands outside of us. Its truth is not dependent on us. Its truth isn't dependent on sinful men and women. The truth of the gospel is dependent on the mercy of the Father the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son and the power of the Spirit. As soon as we begin to say that the gospel's truth or its effectiveness or its power is dependent on us, then we have removed the power of the gospel from the cross and placed it in our imaginations. And friend, when we do that, our faith will certainly fail. Our assurance will certainly fail. But if instead, if instead we continue in the faith as it was given to us in the New Testament, a God-breathed, Christ-centered gospel, then we are not phased by the failures of Demas's. Demi. We're not shaken. We're not shaken when friends or leaders or family members or family members or mentors fail. We're saddened, but our gospel is not less true. If our hope is in Christ and not in people, then our assurance is unshakable. One last word about these two men as we conclude. They both have something in common, don't they? Both Mark and Demas left Paul at some point in Paul's ministry. Both of them set their hands to the plow and then turned back, as Jesus said not to do. Demas is a warning to us. He started out on fire and as one who is well known to the churches, he's close to the apostles, he's respected by many, but what happened? He failed to endure. He was like a seed that is planted among the thorns and it grows up 
and the pleasures of life, choke it out. And he never bears fruit. He never bears fruit because though he appeared to be rooted in Christ, from Paul's report, it turns out he was not rooted. Mark gives us hope, though. Mark shows us that we may have rough seasons in our walk with Christ. Not may, will. But that does not define who we are. When we truly belong to Christ, we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, amen? He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And how does he do that? Well, the Lord surrounds us with mentors and he speaks the word to us through them. And as we are being shaped by the Spirit, shaped by God's Word, we grow and we mature and we grow and we mature and we repent and we believe and we repent and believe until we grow in the glory of Christ. It is the gospel hope in Mark's story that makes me believe that even Demas may have later repented. Maybe Demas gets to Thessalonica and a brother or a sister in the church sees him walking there on the street and he begins that process that Christians do with one another, that process of of restoration, of returning him back to his Savior. God is relentless with his children. Though, Though we'll fail Though we will sputter and sin and say stupid things and do stupid things so long as we have truly been redeemed by the Son and born again by the Spirit and adopted by the Father, God will work in us for his glory. We can trust that. Through through Mark's story, through his story of hope, we can be reminded that our security as sons and daughters of the Father Our security is in Christ. Our eternity is in Christ. All we have, all we need is in Christ. Amen.